to our third week of this Sunday School series on how to read and study the Bible, what theologians call hermeneutics. And this series, as I mentioned the last two weeks, is based on the material provided in this book, Living by the Book, The Art and Science of Studying the Bible by Howard and William Hendricks. And of course, it's based on the Bible as well. We now have copies of this book in our library, so you can investigate that yourself, because I can't even give you everything that's in that book. You can get further edification by reading that yourself. Um, I hope you've been profiting from this series and have been applying what we talk about in your own personal Bible study. And the point of this series is to help bring our Bible study to a place that properly reflects the character of the Word of God, that it is a perfect book, that it's purposeful, everything was done for a purpose, that it's compelling, that it's practical, it's communicable, it's understandable, it's necessary for each one of us, and it's life-changing. Above all, and this is something I wanted to emphasize, especially after hearing um, an insight from someone last week, the Bible, through the different people it talks about, through its different words, through its different events, it's really showing us God. It shows us Christ. All the little pieces are just part of that. So by studying the text, we behold God himself, and we are changed by seeing him. <clears throat> May that be our common goal in Bible study. Let's start with a little bit of review. We've already seen and started practicing a simple method that reflects those truths about what the Bible is. The method has three steps. What are they? What's the first? That's right, observation. And what question are we asking when we observe? What do we see? Very good. What do I actually see in the text? What's the second step? Interpretation. Very good. And what are we asking there, Brian? What does it mean? That's right. We ask first, what do I see? Then, what does it mean? And then third, what's the third step? Application. That's right. We look to apply. And what question are we looking to answer in the apply step? How does it work? Very good. Because it does work. We don't say, well, you know, I, I just don't think this works. No, we know it works. We just need to figure out how. How does it work for me? How does it work for other people? Very good. Um, as we've already discussed, Bible study without any of these three steps is at best unprofitable, but at worst, it's actually detrimental. Because, for example, interpretation without observation can lead to the inability to interpret at all, or a false interpretation, which is going to lead you to wrong application. Or, if we only observe and interpret without applying, we merely provide ourselves head knowledge, which will prove to, to condemn us. Because the Bible says, the more has been given to someone, the more is required of him. And if you don't do what you know you ought to do, that's sin for you. So we need to do each one of these steps. We started looking more closely at the first step, observation. And this is something that we can all do. We don't have to be Bible scholars. And it's something that we can all get better at. And in multiple ways. One is by practice. One is by sharing with other people. And I mentioned last week, that's something I'd actually like to do with you guys. I'd like to hear some of your observations. Because of the amount of material I would like to present to you today, we don't have time to do that today. So next week, I'm looking forward to that. Hearing some of the things that you're learning or that you're noticing in, in the Bible. Because we can practice, we can share and sharpen one another, and of course we can get some formal training. What are, 
we talked about, no, actually, before I get there, let me, let me give you a little side note. As you're applying this method, I hope you've been applying this method, I, I do want to make it clear that as long as you're applying the method, you should still understand that your Bible study might look different from someone else's. Maybe you read a chapter in the morning and a chapter at night, or maybe you listen to it being read while you're commuting to work, or maybe you read a small section but you take intensive notes on it. That's all fine if you're actually applying the method, if you're actually observing, if you're interpreting, and if you're applying. If you're not able to do that with whatever method it is, it doesn't matter how convenient the, the way you read the Bible is for you, if you're not actually profiting from it, if you're not actually able to do the method, then you need to change it. Maybe listening to it doesn't work for you because maybe when you're driving, you're, you're worried about what the other cars are doing or you're thinking about work that day. That doesn't help you. Or maybe, maybe you could benefit by actually writing as you read. That's actually something that the author, Howard Hendricks, recommends. He says you should take notes, you should write in the Bible, which is totally loud, or you can write it in a journal or a separate piece of paper or something like that to make sure that you're engaged with the text. Do you have to do that? No, of course not. But the way we should think about what, why we do certain things in our Bible study in seeking to apply this method, we ought to ask ourselves not this first question, what do I have to do to fulfill the command to read the Bible, but rather, what can I do so that I can fully benefit from the Bible every time I come and read it? So whatever that is for you, do it. And whatever is hindering you when you read the Bible, get rid of it. Okay, uh, back, to, back to some review. We looked at three observation types last week. This is just the beginning of observation types that we can do. And of course, we won't even talk about every single one of them, but I did want to hit some of the main ones for you. What was one of the types of observations that we should be looking for when we read the Bible? That we mentioned last week. That's right. Um, we should be looking for people. We're looking to understand these people and to understand people, the people that are mentioned in the Bible, what sort of, what sort of things should we look at? Yeah. Okay, yes, we can look where they come from. We can look at the background about them. That's going to be helpful. What else? Okay, very good. We can also look at what do they do. Um, the actions, those are going to tell us a lot about them. And what do they say? Those, what comes out of their mouths, that's going to tell us more about them as well. Along the lines of what Gabriella was saying, when we learn about where they come from or um, what they're wearing or any of these descriptions about them, that's a third way or what other people say about them. That's the third way we can understand those characters. Those are three main ways. What do they do? What do they say? What, other, what's, what do we hear about them? What kind of descriptions are given about them? So that's one thing. We want to look for the people. What else? That's right. We want to look for the places. Very good. We want to look for um, where something is happening. What's it like? How far is it from other places? Now, when it comes to places, especially if it's a geographical location in the Bible, they're unfamiliar to us. How can we go about actually understanding them? I don't know where Ramoth Gilead is. That doesn't mean anything to me. So how can I? You're probably going to need a secondary resource. It's true, some things are we can just get from the Bible. Like we looked at last week, Nazareth. The Bible gives us a... Um, it tells us it's in Galilee, and it tells us a little bit of its reputation when we hear the way people talk about Nazareth. So 
it's not that the Bible doesn't tell you anything about these locations, but some things like where something is geographically or how far it is from another place, you, you will benefit from looking at a secondary resource like a Bible atlas or something like that. We'll talk more about those secondary resources when we actually get to the interpretation step of the Sunday School series. But yes, we definitely want to do that. So we want to look for people, we want to look for places. What was the last thing that we looked at last week? Times, that's right. We want to look at when things are happening. How does that event fit in the sequence of other events? How much time has passed by between two events? Very good. So people's places and time, PPT. Now, those are three observation types related to the content of what we read. Today, I want to introduce you to three more observation types but these are related to the medium of the text itself. Not so much what the text is talking about, but how that thing is being talked about in the text. And the way the information is presented about people, places, times, and events. Now we're going to take a look at each of these three types, going to introduce you to them, and we're going to practice a little bit with these types with passages from the Bible. And the title for this lesson is Part 2 of Digging More Deeply, Making and Organizing Advanced Observations. This is actually going to be three parts. Yes, there's going to be one more observation types lesson because I'm going to combine what, what I was going to do on a further lesson about context. I'm going to actually combine that in today's lesson. So next week we'll finish looking at observation types and then we'll move on from there. Again, while this is not exhaustive of all the different things you observe, you might say, oh, he never went over the type of the observation that I made. Eh, that's totally fine. There are going to be some unique things that... Um, that we won't cover here that we definitely should be observing, but I hope and I, and I pray that these types of observation that we look at will form a comfortable bedrock for you as you think about well, what, what do I see? What do I see as I look at these different passages in the Bible? Okay, let's pray and then we'll take a look at these three new types. Gracious God, I thank you, Lord, for how you've helped me and how you've... Uh, allow me to sift through and, and to be able to put this, this lesson together, but I pray, Lord, that you'd make it effective because I recognize, God, that there's, there's a supernatural component to study, there's a supernatural component to, to teaching, and without you, God, there's no profit. So I pray that you would make this time profitable, that you would allow me to speak clearly and to speak with your words and that you allow them to understand and to be able to apply what we learn here, Lord, in their own study so that they might see you more. And I pray that I might see you more and let that we would be dependent on you as we read and as we live, God, beseeching you to open the word up to us. I pray that you would do that for us today and do that for us as we study on our own. pray this in your name. Amen. Okay. So we've looked at three. We're looking at three new observations types today, and they are terms, grammar, and context, or TGC. Now, I couldn't think of any mnemonic, for, mnemonic to remember those, but TGC, terms, grammar, and context. First one I want to look at is terms. Now, it's actually kind of amazing when you think about it that God, in revealing himself, has chosen to, is chosen to do that through words, specifically through written words. He's using what we understand as human language and allowing it to even be translated into English. But how does one actually understand a written language? 
or, or languages in general. What do you actually have to know to be able to understand a language? What do you have to know? Yeah. That's right. You've got to know the meaning of the words, the different individual words. And what else? Okay, you have to know the, the ordering of the words because depending on the order, that can change the way you understand those words. So, and, and when we talk about spoken language, there are even more components, but written language, you've definitely got to understand what do the individual words or symbols mean, and you have to also understand how does the order of those words or symbols affect your translation or affect your interpretation. What were you going to say, Rob? Okay, yes. So having even some of the, the cultural background will give you more insight on those words. Yeah, that's, very, that's a good observation, too. Well, we're basically breaking down two of those parts in our observations today, or in these observation types. Words, or what we call terms, and then the order of the words, which we talk about in grammar. So with terms, we're asking, what do the words mean? What kind of things should we be looking for when it comes to words? Well, I have three different things for you here. We should be first observing words that we don't know, words with unknown meaning. And you've probably encountered this as you read through the Bible. Things like molech, ashram, baal, redemption, sanctification, praetorium. Yeah, you may have heard these words before. You've encountered them multiple times in the text, but what are they, actually? We need to make sure we understand what these things are. The original audience knew what these words meant, and we want to recapture that if we want to understand what was being communicated to the original audience. If you don't know what a word means or what a word refers to in the Bible, how can you find out? That's right. It's the same thing if you don't know what a word means regularly. You can go to a dictionary, and they have Bible dictionaries, but regular dictionaries would be helpful as well. And not just dictionaries, you can also use... Um, uh, context sometimes to figure out a word's meaning or at least help you figure out a word's meaning or the significance of a certain thing. And you can Google it and use other resources. But yeah, there are plenty of ways for us to be able to figure out what a word means. And we want to do that. So that's the first thing. When looking at terms, we want to make sure we know the words that we've never learned before. Secondly, we want to observe words that we actually do know the meanings, but the meaning is special. It's significant, or maybe it's a little bit changed in a particular verse. And we'll actually look at a Bible passage that illustrates this. We want to look for words with special meaning in a section. Open your Bibles to Psalm 37.4. You've heard this verse before, probably. But when we're looking to observe words, I think this verse is a, a good illustration. Again, I'm reading from the New American Standard, but Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And chances are you've heard all those words before in that verse, and you know the dictionary definitions of all those words. But there's one word in particular that stands out to me as I read this, where we want to make sure, well, what does this really mean? When it says, Delight yourself in the Lord. What does it mean to delight yourself in the Lord? Well, what does delight normally mean? Yeah. 
yeah, to take pleasure in, to be satisfied with, to find great happiness in. And so we could say, well, I need to find pleasure in or take great, find great happiness in the Lord. Well, what does that look like? Even if we know what that means, it takes a little bit of time to think about, well, how does that actually play itself out? What does delighting look like or mean in my life? And this is an important thing to figure out because of the cause and effect that's illustrated in this verse. If you delight yourself in the Lord, what will he do? That's pretty. That's pretty amazing promise. I'll give you your heart's desires if you delight in me. So we want to take some time to make sure we actually know and can get a good grasp on what it means to delight in this verse. Let's take a look at another example. Turn over in the New Testament to John, John chapter two, verses twenty-three to twenty-five. John two verses twenty-three to twenty-five. Now, I apologize if the the translation is not quite the same in your Bible, but I think most of the key words that we're talking about, they're the same or very similar in each translation. But John 2, 23 to 25 says this. Now when he, this is talking about Jesus, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let me ask you this first. Are there any words or phrases in these three verses that stick out to you as being particularly significant or having a meaning that seems special? Which one? Okay. Yeah, in the, I guess the different translation, that's what in the NASB says, entrusting. Jesus did not commit himself, did not entrust himself. Am I right? Okay, yeah. In the New King James, it says commit. Yes, that's definitely one where it sticks out. Jesus would not entrust himself, or he would not commit himself to them. What does that mean? We may have an idea of what that normally means, but what does that mean here? Any other words? Yeah, Eric. Okay, yeah. What about the sense of the word no? He knew men, and he knew what was in man. Good. Maybe one more? Yeah, Paul. Yes. That's one that really sticks out, right? Many believed in his name, but the reaction of Jesus is not one that we would normally expect for belief. We say, yeah, believe in Jesus. That's the way to be saved. But it says he wouldn't commit to them. He wouldn't entrust himself to them. Oh. What kind of belief are we talking about here? What are these people doing when it says they believe? Because it might be a little different than the way we normally understand belief. That's why we want to take time to observe these terms and really think about what they mean and what they look like. So even if we know the normal meanings of these words, we want to pay attention and observe words that have special significance or maybe even a little bit of a changed meaning in a certain section. Okay. So we want to look at words that we don't know, terms that we don't know. We want to look at terms that are special. We also want to look at, if we can and when we can, words in their original language. Because, believe it or not, the Bible was not written in English. What two main languages was the Bible written in? 
Hebrew and Greek, and a particular kind of Greek, Koine Greek, or Common Greek, came a little bit later. Very good. If we can get a little bit extra grasp on the original words, the original language, that's going to help us even more in our interpretation. Now you might say, what? I have to go to the Greek, the Hebrew? I suddenly feel like I can't understand the Bible at all. No, 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 don't think that way. If you don't know Greek or Hebrew, you're not suddenly a second-class citizen when it comes to reading the Bible, or you're not some sort of downgraded Christian. The translations that you and I have that are in English are wonderful, and they can accurately and excellently communicate the original meaning of the Greek and Hebrew. And Jesus confirmed this himself when he quoted from a translation of the Old Testament in the Gospels. He uh, quoted verses in the, from the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And, it was a, and there were some little nuances that were different between that and the original Hebrew, but that was fine. He said, this is the word of God. And so we can do the same thing. We can trust our English translations. They're very helpful. That being said, there are some things in the original language, some nuances, some tiny little details that aren't fully communicated in English. Let me give you an example. I took German in high school, and I also studied it a little bit in college. And there's a phrase in German that the translation in English is love, peace, and harmony. But the actual German is Friede, Freude, and Eierkuchen. Now, they are equivalent. That's a, an accurate translation to say that Friede, Freude, and Eierkuchen is love, peace, and harmony. But you may notice there are some nuances missing in the English translation. Friede, Freude, and Eierkuchen. Can you tell me what any of those nuances might be? Yeah. Yeah, those first two words are very similar, right? Um, they both start with the FR and they both end with that DE sound, Friede, Freude. Very good. Um, if you know German, you also might notice that there's something funny about the literal meanings of those words. Anybody know what Eierkuchen are? Eierkuchen is pancakes. So it's actually, literally, peace, joy, and pancakes. So even though those are equivalent expressions, we wouldn't appreciate that nuance unless we actually went to the original German. <clears throat> I guess they figured pancakes is like all you need. It's harmony. <clears throat> it, there's something similar happening with the Bible. Thankfully, there are an abundance or there is an abundance of resources for us to rediscover and to detect these nuances in the biblical text. You probably have seen some of this yourself. Many steady Bibles have markings or footnotes displaying or explaining key words in the text using the original language. You might see it in the margin sometimes. Or you can also use and you can buy and use an interlinear Bible that actually prints the original language along with the English translation. And then there's a dictionary in the back, and you can just, if you ever say, oh, well, I wonder about this word, you can just see what the number is and go back to the end of the Bible and hear the original definition. There's plenty of free computer software that will give you the original language. Uh, one of them that I've used before is eSword. It's free to download. Just look it up in Google. And it will give you the original language and the definitions that go with those different words in Greek and Hebrew. Of course, you can also learn those two languages. You can go and learn Koine Greek and Hebrew. Now, that's probably a little bit more difficult. They might say, ah, this seems kind of advanced. You sure we need to do this? Well, of course, you're not required, but we 
can get extra benefit from looking at these things, especially when there's a key term where we say, I feel like I need to know more about this. We have the resources in our day to take something that would have been rather advanced actually make it, and, and actually make it much simpler for us. Let me show you a few instances in the Bible where having a, a little bit of knowledge of the nuances from the original language would help us. Turn in your Bibles to Philemon, the 10th verse in that book. It's only one chapter, Philemon, verse 10. Now, if you have a study Bible, you might actually see what I'm going to talk about before I even tell you. Oh, I lost where Philemon is. Okay, thank you. That helps me. Good reminder there. All right, Philemon 1.10. Actually, we'll look at two verses here, 10 and 11. This is Paul talking. And he's a... He writes, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. Now, the story here in Philemon, Paul's writing this letter to this guy, Philemon, who's apparently a rich person, who owned this slave, Onesimus. Onesimus ran away. Paul is writing to Philemon about Onesimus, and he makes these two statements in verses 10 and 11. Do you notice anything about the name Onesimus? Maybe your Bible gives a footnote. If not, I'll tell you. Onesimus has a meaning. It means useful or profitable. So, based on that, looking back at verses 10 and 11, what do you notice? Eric. That's right. He's playing on the words. He's basically saying, I appeal to you for my child, useful, whom I've begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you. But now he's useful. Now he really is what his name is because he's come to know the Lord. We would not be able to appreciate that without a little bit of knowledge of the original language. Speaking of slaves, one very dramatic example of the nuances related to the Greek um, is related to something John MacArthur has really expanded upon about the word doulos. Does anybody know what doulos means from the Greek? Slave, very good. Why is this word so significant? Because so many times in the New Testament, the word doulos is not translated as slave. It's translated as servant or bondservant. When there's really no reason to do that. It's the word slave. And it's actually quite amazing when you think about how ubiquitous, how often that word was being used. The apostles called themselves slaves. Uh, Paul and, and others would open their letters often saying, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, a doulos of Jesus Christ. We're called slaves by God in Revelation. Jesus was said to have taken on the form of a, not servant, not bondservant, but a slave in Philippians chapter 2. That gives us a different understanding than just servant. If you want to know more about that, check out the book Slave. It's in our library, or you can look it up online. MacArthur says a lot about that, and it's really quite significant. There's a big difference there. One third example is related to a character, a person, that I actually mentioned last week. Turn to 2 Timothy 4.10, where we'll see something else related to the original language. 
2 Timothy 4.10. I didn't put a Hebrew example up here, not because um, you can't find anything in the Hebrew. I actually had something really cool to share with you from the Old Testament, but it would take too long. So if you want to ask me about it afterwards, you can't. 2 Timothy 4.10. Just a little statement here about a guy named Demas. 2 Timothy 4.10. This is, just remember the background here. Paul is nearing the end of his life, probably going to be executed soon. He's in a prison without much help. And he's telling Timothy about how many people have left him. And he says in 2 Timothy 4.10, For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. And this is a sad piece of scripture. If you remember, if you've seen before, Demas is mentioned in other parts of the Bible as one of the workers who often was with Paul. He mentions him along with others at the end of his letter. He's like, yeah, Demas greets you. Demas, my fellow worker, greets you. But here he says, Demas, who has loved this present world, has deserted me. And someone pointed out to me, and I thought this was rather interesting, the word for love here. Does anybody know what it is? It's the word from agape. Demas, who has loved this world in an agape fashion, has deserted me. Someone pointed out to me that that's the only time that agape love is used in a, in a sort of negative sense in the Bible. And remember, agape, or the, the verb form agapeo, means something like to love unconditionally, or it's a, it's a very spe- specifically chosen love. I choose to love this. That's what Demas did. He chose to love the world, and that, therefore he deserted Paul. So again, seeing the nuances from the original language can allow us to understand even more when we come to these passages. So as you return to your Bible study, I want you to pay attention to the terms. Those words that you don't know, those words that you do know but seem particularly significant in a section or maybe even a little bit changed in meaning, and also words from the original language. Questions before we move on? Yeah. I think it depends on the type of Bible that you're using. I know that you certainly can learn more about the use of a word when you see it used in other passages, but in terms of being able to see the original Greek or Hebrew word, I don't think all Bibles have that in their concordance, but I think that some do. I'm not familiar with that, but possibly. Good question. Any other questions? Yeah, Dwayne. Yes, that's a really good point. Dwayne is pointing out um, the frequency, looking at the frequency of a certain term, and that's actually something that personally I found very interesting in, in my recent study. In Titus, in chapter 2, Paul uses the word sensible or sensibly four times in, within the space of about 11 verses. He says, teach these people to, to live sensibly or to be sensible. And uh, that, that word coming up multiple times, that something that stuck out to me. I really think he wants to drive home this idea of being sensible or living sensibly. That's something actually we'll talk about a little bit more when we talk about looking for repetition in the text. But that's very good, Dwayne. Yeah, Eric, something else.
Yeah, that's a good point. Um, looking at the words that, even though there are multiple different words in the Greek, there's only one translation for it in English, or we miss that beginning prefix or that, um, that suffix. Yes, we can get a little bit more of that back when we're looking at the original language. So that's good. If you have more questions, we can talk about that afterwards. Let's move on to the second one. We want to look at the terms. We want to look at what the words mean, but we also want to look at the order of the words, and that's by looking at Grammar. Now, when I say the word grammar, it may bring back bad memories for you. But believe me, grammar is actually a good thing. And not just because I'm an English major. Grammar is a good thing, and it's key in the way that God wrote the Bible because God was pleased to use grammar, very specific grammar. He presented his words in a specific order, and we want to understand and appreciate that order to profit from God's word. Now, I'd love to just take a whole bunch of time to review rules of grammar with you. But we don't have enough time for that. Maybe you wouldn't like that. But it would be, it would be profitable for you. <clears throat> just as a sum up, we know that in grammar, when it comes to grammar or it comes to languages, there are different parts of speech, right? Things like nouns, verbs, adjectives, adverbs, prepositions, um, conjunctions, all these different things we can actually pick out from a biblical passage or from a verse, and they are worth our observation. What does this adjective actually modify here? What, um, what is this prepositional phrase doing here? Things like that. We should also pay attention to the parts of sentences, things like the subject or the verb or the direct object. Who actually is doing the action in the sentence? What is the action? What is the action being done to? because those things were also very specifically chosen by God. As I said, we don't have time to review all those things, so I just want to highlight two pieces of grammar that I think are particularly revealing when it comes to reading the Bible. And those are verbs and transition words. <clears throat> now, what is a verb? I heard something. An action word or... a stated being verb. Very good. So when we think about the boy runs... Home, runs is the word, because the action that the boy is doing, the subject, is runs. But the boy can also be something. The boy is tired. Is is a verb. So we want to be able to recognize both of those things. Now, verbs are very important parts of sentences, but verbs can, there are a number of options that you have when it comes to using a particular verb. You can use a particular tense, or you can also change the voice of the verb. Now, what is tense? Verb tense. Very good. It talks about the timing of a verb. And we're familiar with these different tenses, right? Present tense, it's happening right now or it's happening all the time. Past tense, something that happened in the past. Future, that means it hasn't happened yet, it will happen. What about present perfect? It, to just refine that a tiny bit, you're right. It is continuing to happen, but when did it start? In the past, very good. Present perfect would be a statement like, the boy has... I um, know. Let me think of a better one. He has steadied for two hours. Has steadied. That's present perfect and indicates that he started in the past, but he's still doing it. He has steadied for two hours. The Bible and the translations of it, they use these different tenses, and we want to be able to pick them out because whether something happened in the past or is still happening or will happen, that 
can be significant on the interpretation that we apply to that section. <clears throat> Another thing that you should look for when it comes to verbs in the Bible is voice. Now, when I say voice, I don't mean anything that necessarily has to do with sound or pitch. When we're talking about voice, we're essentially talking about the differences that exist between these two sentences I'm about to read to you. Think about the difference in these two sentences. The boy reads the book, and the book is read by the boy. The boy reads the book, the book is read by the boy. What's the difference between those two? Active and passive voice. In other words, one, the subject does the action. The boy reads the book, subject boy. What is he doing? He reads. And in the second, the passive, the subject receives an action done by something else or someone else. The book is read by the boy. The book's not doing anything. It's receiving the action by the boy. Now, normally in English, you try and use active sentences because speaking passively sounds kind of weird. But there are instances where you want to use the passive voice. And there are instances in the Bible where the passive is used. There's also instances where something called the middle voice is used, which doesn't exist in English. Does anybody know what the middle voice is? The Greeks, they had this particular type of voice. Whenever you hear something, maybe the pastor says, or maybe there's a little note in your Bible that says that a verb is in the middle voice, that usually indicates that the verb is, or the, whatever's doing the verb is doing it for itself or to itself. That's just a little nuance from the middle voice. So when I talk about verb voice, I'm talking about an active, passive, or middle voice. They say, okay, this is getting a little bit beyond me, David. I don't know if I can keep track of all this. Well, let me show you some examples. One little caveat here. I'm looking specifically at the English translation. There, it's possible that the Greek has a few things that I'm not able to detect from the English, but we'll just go with English. If you know some of the nuances from the Greek that can help our understanding, you can let me know. Turn over in your Bibles to Romans 8.30. We'll see something interesting with verbs there. Romans 8, verse 30. Well, I guess we should really start in verse 29. Tons of verbs in these two verses. What were you going to say, Judy? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think certainly there's a, there must be some similarity between reflexive and middle. Reflexive referring to something that's happening to itself. Or we have reflexive pronouns in English when we say things like himself. Um, I'm not familiar enough to know if there, what a reflexive verb is or if there is such a thing and if it's, if it's similar, but perhaps. Perhaps. Anyways, I'll actually give you an example of middle voice a little bit later so you have a better idea of what that is. But let's look at verses 29 and 30 in Romans 8, verse, starting in verse 29. For those whom he, that's God, foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, a lot of verbs here. What do you notice about the verbs? What can you tell me about them? Yeah. The verbs are in past tense. Well, these are all things that have happened in the past. Because of that, something might stick out to you as being odd. If all these are in the past, what seems odd about 
at least one of these verbs. Very good. So we're looking at some verbs that they're all in the past, but some of these, or especially at least one of these, doesn't seem like it's happened in the past. How can God say that he's glorified us? I mean, isn't that the thing that we look forward to? We look forward to the glorification. We look forward to the exaltation. But this verse is specifically written in the past tense. He says it's already done. The glorification is already complete. It's finished. Or it, 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 it has happened. They might say, well, isn't there an aspect of it that hasn't happened? Well, yes, because the Bible does say that we will be glorified. We will um, we look forward to the glorification. And yet, there's something about it that's accurately portrayed as happening in the past. So that's one example. Let's look at another one. Turn over to Ephesians 2.8. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Yes. Yeah, I, I, that's, the, uh, that's the interpretation I've heard before that makes a lot of sense to me that when it says we are glorified, it means it's already, it's so sure that you can talk about it in the past tense. Yeah, it actually reminds me of one of the passages in Revelation where if you look at the section where he talks about the prophecy of Babylon's fall, it's all in the past tense. Except right after he finishes the prophecy, he says this will happen to Babylon. I feel like it might be some of the same thing where we're talking about how, how sure something is. You can also say, in terms of God being outside of time, that it is something that he's already, he's already finished, that he's already done. And you, yeah. I think you can tie it to that as well. Yes. Um, I also think of one of the verses that, or let me just repeat it for the recording, the already and not yet. Yes, I think we can, we can tie the the use of tenses, especially the past tense in, the, in, in Romans, to that. I also think of the, the verse that talks about us, we have become heirs. And when you're an heir, you, you already have all the things that are part of your inheritance, even if you haven't received them yet. So it could also be kind of like the already not yet that you just mentioned. So a lot of things just even from that one verb tense. Anyways, let's look at Ephesians 2.8. This might be slightly different depending on your translation, but here's what the New American Standard says. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now let's focus on the first verb phrase. For by grace you have been saved through faith. What do you notice about the verb? It might say you are saved in your translation, but it's going to be similar. Yes, passive voice. Meaning the subject does the action or receives the action? Receives the action. So when he talks about you, you have been saved. You didn't do it. You received it. And the rest of the verse confirms this, right? Um, by grace through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. So who did it? 
God did, right? Even the grammar is emphasizing who accomplishes salvation. It's God. You have been saved. You are saved. Not by yourself, but by him. The passive there indicates that God is the one responsible. Very good. Let's look at one more. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 to 10. First Corinthians verse, or chapter 13, verses 8 to 10. Okay. Verse 8 reads, Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For, if we, know, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. What do you notice about the verbs in these verses? Right, we have all of these are happening in the future. Will be done away, will cease, will be done away. Good. What else? Dwayne. That's a really good observation, Dwayne. Noticing that we have three verb phrases. Two of them are the same, will be done away. But then the one in the middle is different, will cease. Why weren't they all translated the same? It probably is because there's something different in the Greek about each one of these phrases. What else do you notice? Actually, even in English, we can notice something different about those two phrases. Will be done away, will cease. What do you notice about will be done away? It's future tense, but what else? will be done away. Is that active or passive voice? Passive, right? Who's going to do away with it? Something, someone is going to do, with it, do away with it. Do we have any indication of who or what that might be in these verses? Very good. When the perfect comes. When the perfect comes, it will be done away. So whatever or whoever the perfect is, that's the one who's going to do away with those things. One talks about um, knowledge and prophecy. But what about that middle one? Tongues. They will cease. It's not in the passive. Actually, interestingly enough, it's in the middle. It's in the middle voice. Meaning that what, what, happening, what is happening here indicates that it's happening to itself or for itself. Something else is going to do away with knowledge and prophecy when the perfect comes. But tongues they will cease, presumably, all by themselves. They will do it to themselves. They will do it for themselves. No one else will have to act on them. Is that significant? I think so. It's the reason why in our church doctrinal statement we say we do not believe in the current use of the gift of speaking in tongues because it's something that has ceased, has ceased for itself. It was something that no one else had to do anything about. It just went away on its own. It was a sign gift 
that was used to validate the apostles in the, in the, the early church and to validate the new believers, but it's not something that continued. I saw your hand, Gabriella. I don't know about that one. Love never fails, at least in the English translation, is present tense. So that would mean, you know, it continues. So probably not middle there. So anyways, or Amy, did you have something else? Those other two ones, certainly. And I, I could see what you're saying here. All three of them, why, why aren't they all being done at the same time? I would say, as others have said who have interpreted this, that the difference in the voice of those verbs and the difference in those phrases argues that there's a, a difference in the timing of when those things happen. Yeah, Chris. That's true. Yeah, there also seems to be, that's a really good observation, Chris. The repetition there in verse 9, we know in part, we prophesy in part, does not include the speaking in tongues. So we does seem to be making a distinction between those two and then the other one. So these are good. You guys are making some good observations with me. This is just to illustrate to you how even little pieces of a verb can be really profound, can be, tell you a lot when we observe them, especially as related to the original language. Good. Let's move on to the other piece of grammar though, that I want to talk to you about, and that's transition words, especially, well, especially two of them. Now, transition words, they can be small parts of sentences, but they tell you a lot because they tell you about the flow of ideas. They're usually conjunctions or connecting words. What are some examples, besides the two I provided, of conjunctions or transition words? Therefore is a good one. Uh, what's another one? And, very good. What's another one? I don't know about never. I think never is more about an adverb that describes time. What would be another one? Dwayne. Yes, very good. Since, because, as a result, or, yet. Uh, let's see. Um, Will be is more, more of a verb phrase. But there are lots of different transition words that we use, and especially these little conjunctions like and, for, or, yet, so, or nor, they are very valuable to pick out and observe when you're reading a passage because they'll tell you about where the, speak, or where the author is going with his ideas. And depending on the choice of conjunction or transition word, you get an idea of what he's trying to do. Two of them, two conjunctions that I really, or two transition words I really want to highlight are the words but and for. What does but indicate anytime you read it? What does it indicate about the flow of ideas? Yeah, Eric. Very good. But is a contrasting word. So anytime you see that in the text, you should ask yourself what two things are being contrasted here. Whatever came before the but is going to be contrasted with whatever came afterwards. This is really valuable. Let me just show you two verses that show this. 2 Samuel 11.1. 1. I'll actually just read these to you. You don't need to turn there because these are kind of quick. 2 Samuel 11.1 1 says this. Then it happened in the, in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. 
But David stayed at Jerusalem. What's the contrast presented in that verse? We have the word but. What two things are being contrasted? Very good. It says, normally the kings go out. David sent Joab and his servants. They fought, but David stayed in Jerusalem. And this is going to prove to be quite profound because what happens in Jerusalem, or what, what is it that happens in Jerusalem while David stayed behind? If you remember. Say that again. That's right. That's where the adultery with Bathsheba takes place. Now, we don't want to re- necessarily read too much into this and say, um, without further observation of the passage, oh, you know, he, did, he sinned here by staying behind. I don't know if we can go that far, but certainly there's a difference between what kings normally do and what David did. His men going out and David staying behind. The author wanted to show us, wanted to highlight that contrast for whatever reason. Let me show you another example. Or I'll, I'll read to you. You don't have to turn there. Mark 10, verses 13 to 14. Mark 10, verses 13 to 14 says, And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, him being Jesus. But the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So I actually have two buts, two uses of this word in these two verses. They were bringing children, but the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus, when he saw this, says something. So what kind of contrast are we seeing? Eric. Yeah, that's a good explanation, Eric. There was something happening. They were bringing the children... But in contrast to the people who wanted to bring the kids, the disciples said, no, get those kids out of here. We don't want them around Jesus. But then Jesus, like you said, he kind of goes back to the original. He says, no, 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 they're supposed to come. And I like how it even uses the word, he became indignant with them. Man, I do not want Jesus to ever be indignant with me, right? The disciples, they must have felt pretty bad. He says, what do you think you're doing? I don't know exactly what that looked like, but I'm using my imagination a little bit. What? How dare you do that? Bring the children to me. Jesus is contrasting a lot with what they were thinking. And the word but highlights that for us. So look for that. Look for that as you're studying. Another word I want to, another transition word that's really, really helpful for us is the word for, or like therefore. Usually the word gar in in Greek. What does the word for indicate? Very good. It's a lot about the why. It gives you a reason. When you see the word for, whatever happened previously You're going to get the reason for it after the word for. Let me show you some examples. Titus 1, verses 10 and 11. Do turn to this passage. Titus 1, 10 and 11. Verse 10 says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Okay, now your Bibles might actually make a little division here. 
between verse 10 and what comes before. But the word for is got to be related to something that was just said. It just gave a reason for something. So look back, look up a little bit from verses 9 to verse 5. Why, or no, let me say it another way. This reason about there being rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers is given to justify what action? Give a reason for what course of action? Cheryl. Yeah, yeah, really good. In verse 9 it says, holding fast the faithful word which is, a, which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute, to those who, refute those who contradict. Who are these people? They're the elders, which is the very first thing he talks about in Titus. Starting verse 5, he says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might appoint elders, and they need to have these qualifications. You get a little bit more understanding why. Why is it so important to have elders? Why is it so important that they're able to do these things? Because, verse 10, there are many rebellious men. It's giving you a reason for all of that. So that four is really valuable. Yeah, Paul. Yes, yes. Yeah, I actually, one of the examples I was going to use, if you go to Romans chapter 1, it's like every other, every single verse, he starts with the word for. It's like, oh my goodness, Paul, what are you doing? Well, he's laying out a very careful argument. It says this, because of this, because of this, because of this, because of this. He's giving you reasons for all these different things that are happening related to sin in, in mankind and the wrath of God that comes on them because of that. So that's really good. We're seeing the use of the word for. Let me show you one more. This is in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes, verses 9 and 10. I don't think we'll actually get to our last one today because it's almost 10.30, so we'll just finish with Ecclesiastes 9 and 10. It's totally fine. I don't mind. Ecclesiastes 9, or Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10. Very interesting. Verse 10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Right, for indicates a reason, right? What are we supposed to do, and what's the reason? What's the advice our writer here Solomon is giving us. Well, let's start with the first one. What are we supposed to do? What? Yeah, to work and not just work, but... Sandy? Yeah, work heartily. Work with all your might. Whatever your hands finds to do, do it with all your might. And let me give you the reason. What's the reason? Kind of an odd reason. Uh, actually, I'll start with you. What were you saying? That's right. He says, you're eventually going to go to the grave. You're eventually going to go to Sheol. And there's no work there. There's no activity, no planning, no knowledge, no wisdom. So we could summarize that by saying something like the following. Work with all your might because when you die, you won't be able to work anymore. You won't be able to impact anymore. 
That's not necessarily a message that we hear very often, but it's one that God wanted to put in Ecclesiastes and that he even used the word for to emphasize for us. So, grammar is really good. You have to love grammar. God loves grammar, I believe. So, as you return to your Bible reading, pay attention to the grammar, the subjects, the verbs, the nouns, the adjectives, the different modifiers, and especially verb tense, verb voice, and also transition words like but and for. Okay. Next week, we'll pick up, we didn't get to talk about context, but context, the last one here, is one of the most important things you could possibly observe when it comes to the Bible. And hopefully, we'll be able to finish our last set of observation types then as well. So I look forward to talking with you more about that next week. Yeah, Dwayne. Different colors. I was not going to speak super extensively about that, but I will, I will make a comment on that right now. That is definitely something useful, right? And it's not something that we're required to do, but I do think when it comes to what do you do or what don't you do in your Bible study, do what helps you. Do what helps you actually observe and be able to interpret the text. For, um, for some, that's going to be highlighting. For some, though, highlighting might not be effective at all. Uh, especially if you highlight everything. You know, you have a highlight on each, each set of the verses. Then, then none of it means anything, right? I find particularly that writing really helps me. I'm just not able to pay attention to the text the same way without writing something in response to it. Now, for some of you, that might be the worst thing ever, and you're able to pay attention without that. I will say he does recommend writing, so there's, a, there's at least that plug. And um, so it's something to consider. But whatever you need to be able to really... Uh, Grapple with the text. Whatever, you, whatever helps you actually think about it and observe the different things, do it. Writing, highlighting, listening to it, reading it out loud, any of those things. Don't feel like you have to do it uh, a set way. Do what is actually helpful to you. All right, let me, uh, let me close the prayer and uh, look forward to talking to you more about this next week. <clears throat> Holy God, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for the richness of your scripture. I pray that you would show it more to us. Bless this series, Lord, not for my sake, uh, not even for the sake of the church, Lord, but for, for your own sake. Be glorified in how we're able to see more in the scriptures and like, not just see it, God, but to understand it and to apply it, God. We don't want to be those who merely hear the word and not doers. So make us doers, Lord, and help us understand so that we can do it by your spirit. Bless this service, Lord. Bless Brian as he... Um, is going to share the word with us. I pray, Lord, you just fill him with great joy and peace as he, um, as he looks to edify us in that way. Bless the food as well as we are nourished and refresh us, Lord, for this, uh, this day of worship. Pray this in your name. Amen.